It's a Saturday edition of Mike of New York. Hey. It's a Saturday edition of Mike of New York. Hey. 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 I can tell you that Attorney Brian Primo and his client did in fact come in. She filed a formal report alleging criminal conduct against the governor. The conduct was sexual in nature. The meeting at that point commences the investigative process for the Albany County Sheriff's Office. I cannot go into any detail from there. I can tell you that we've reached out to the Attorney General's Office and their uh, private counsel assigned requesting investigative material that will aid us in going forward. I've read the report as well. Um, I've read our report that we took um, from our victim. And, um, and again, I, I commend them on their bravery for coming forward. And now it's time for us to begin our investigation. Again, we're not going to rush this because of who he is. We're not going to delay it because of who he is. We're going to conduct a very comprehensive investigation. And when the facts and all the data and the evidence is compiled, we'll make a decision at that point. Hey, so the next story in the grab bag today, of course, is the one that we're dealing with and talking about. And this is, of course, the one that has to do with, of all things, Aaron Rodgers and Joe Rogan. Yeah, that other guy who does a podcast. But anyway, the two guys got together and they were talking about all these issues with the, the complaints about Aaron Rodgers not being more careful and being tested positive for COVID and all that. Aaron Rodgers, of course, has been saying that, that you know he's been taking uh, medication, uh, therapeutics, and his doctors were the reasons that he was not able to get his um, um, his uh, uh, inoculation because of a medical condition that involved some surgery that he received on his knees and other parts of his body uh, that were damaged, uh, of course, playing football. And so Rogers, plays for the Green Bay Packers, quarterback for the Packers, been there for a while, uh, has basically said has basically said, has basically said that the deal is he was not able to get the inoculation due to the high incidences of blood clots. And that is why his doctor recommended to him for him not to get the inoculation. And thus, he is worried that he's becoming a victim of cancel culture. A lot of people getting canceled lately. And that is basically the other process, which is deplatforming, not letting the truth out. Anything goes, basically. Should be a conversation, not a controversy. I've made a decision based on what's best for my body. I've just laid it out to you, my health history, and why I made this decision. Okay? This shouldn't be a controversy. It should be a conversation. I'm here to continue the conversation. Because of this virus and testing positive, I have to miss 10 days. Again, the scientifics of that arbitrary number is whatever. 
I feel really good. And if this were the flu, there's no reason I wouldn't play on Sunday. Um, especially the way I feel right now. That being said, I'm very excited for Jordan. I have had conversations with him. It's going to be very strange to watch the game uh, without being there. Just my third time ever watching a game on TV of a team that I've been on. The other two was post-surgeries in, in 2006 and 2017. So that's going to be hard. But, look, I hope that we can take a step back, quit lying, quit with the you know the witch hunt and the canceling, and realize this is a conversation to be had, not a controversy. And let's move this forward with some love and connection. That's what we need in this world. This, things that we don't agree with or understand, when we don't agree or understand with each other, let's communicate instead of initially just canceling someone, silencing someone. Like, that gets us nowhere. Like, that's what I did when I started my research. You know, I put every single bias to the side and think about, okay, what is going to be best for my body and listen to everybody on every side of every opinion. That's the only way to truly learn things without bringing your own personal, you know, bias into things. You want to live in an echo chamber? Like, go for it. But, like, that's not a way to move society forward. That's not a way to move your own consciousness forward. you got to be able to, like, talk, reach across the aisle and talk to people you don't agree with. Um, you know, I've talked to many people who are vaxxed, and we've had incredible conversations on both sides. And I appreciate hearing their insight. I made a decision that was in the best decision of my body. And if you have a problem with that, there's nothing that I can say to you other than this was my decision, this was best for my body, and I'm sorry you feel that way. Well, they're being called the 13 Judases. These are the uh, GOPers who helped the Democrats pass a $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill, of which only some uh, $120 billion out of $1.2 trillion, or roughly 10% of the entire projected budget, is actually going to be going to roads and bridges and reconstruction. The other 800 or so billion dollars is all going to social reconstruction projects, you know, to make you all touchy-feely and feel better about yourself, your country, your world, and whatever. In other words, it's to give out a lot of drugs to make people feel safe. Big Pharma is the biggest backer of this. Of course, you know, they want to pharmacologically control everybody these days with pills and medication and whatever, so that if you're not on a pill, you're not you know, you're not taking a pill. You're, you're, you can't do that. You know, this is what Big Pharma wants. They want everybody on some kind of medication. They want everybody controllable. They want everybody manipulatable. They want everybody addicted to something because if they're addicted to something, then they're going to be voting for those people who give them that something. And that is something that is just plainly wrong. Yes, can you imagine in this infrastructure bill of 1.2 trillion i'm not talking billion trillion dollars you know that's ten thousand million dollars ten thousand million dollars ten thousand million dollars a very small percentage of it is actually only going to roads bridges canals and other infrastructure improvement you know the bipartisan infrastructure measure allocates only 110 billion with another 10 billion to supervision 110 billion actual construction of roads bridges and other projects 
and this is according to the Democrats' own paperwork that they filed to get this bill passed. And yep, the 13 idiots, you know, these 13 Republicans, four of whom are from New York State, decided to go vote for it. Well, you know, broad backs better. <laughs> yeah. No, the BBB did not pass. That is the uh, almost $3 trillion. Now, $65 billion was for water infrastructure, $39.2 billion for public transit, $47 billion for resiliency purposes. Oh, that's going to be for AOC's folks. You know that. $7.5 billion for electric vehicle infrastructure. Well, that's charging stations. That can be useful. And $21 billion will be used to address pollution. Yeah, that's so that maybe, you know, after you come out of Taco Bell, your farts won't smell as bad. But that's basically what's going to happen here. They want to address pollution with $21 billion. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, many are being praised for the measure, like... Uh, uh, Secretary Monshin of Treasury is out there saying, you know, he is pleased that the representatives have come forward and passed this important bipartisan legislation that will get me a lot of money. Well, yeah, kickbacks uh, are common in these things. And the consultancies for those once, you know, they're out of their terms. Now, this was not the budget that was put together in the dead of night by Bernie Sanders and the Socialist Squad. And, uh, you know, this is, this is uh, a lot of people said that there is hope now that the bipartisan infrastructure bill that has passed has weakened a lot of the socialist negotiating hands and perhaps even cut out radical socialist spending sprees that were initially planned. But still, of this entire budget, there are still billions and billions, as Carl Sagan used to say, that will be spent on useless programs hundreds of millions of dollars that won't be used to fill any pothole that won't improve elevator access or escalator access at any subway station that won't build new staircases for people on highway bridges and that won't improve traffic signs that will allow children to more safely cross into schools and why because a lot of this is pork barrel money and basically, it's pork and pork that will go a long way till the next election. What can you say? It's Washington. It is a swamp. And the swamp things got a little more money in their system. And 13 idiots on the Republican side allowed it to happen. That's what you can do. Now, who were these people? Well, you can always look it up and find out. But essentially, the uh, measure was passed with 226 or 228 to 206 votes, with 13 Republicans combining with 215 Democrats that managed to send it to Biden's desk. Now, four of the New York GOPers were John Katko, Tom Reed, Nicole. Taxis and Andrew Garbiano. Now, Malatoskis district is in Staten Island. She also has parts of Brooklyn, so that's part of here in New York City. But for too long, she says, uh, they need a lot of help with a lot of things in Staten Island, and therefore they need the money for those things. Let's hope even uh, 
half a billion will go to the subway system in Staten Island and the buses and other transportation needs because a lot of people are saying it's mostly going to be going to people like Ilian Omar and other squad members like AOC and Jamal Bloman. Now, they didn't vote on this. So, if a socialist slush fund got slashed so bad that the socialists themselves aren't going to be getting into it, one wonders, what was this for in the first place? Now, the other Republicans who voted on this were Don Bacon of Nebraska, Brian Fitzpatrick of Pennsylvania, Anthony Gonzalez of Ohio, Adam Katzinger of Illinois, and Katzinger is on his way out, by the way. There's David McKinley of West Virginia, Don Young of Alaska, Fred Upton of Michigan, Jack Von Drew of New Jersey, and Chris Smith, also of the Garden State. That's it for me for now. You have a great weekend ahead. We'll talk some more Sunday. Reached an unemployment rate of 4.6%, two full years earlier than the vast majority of economists projected that would happen. And we've just, we're just getting started. We did something uh, that's long overdue, that long has been talked about in Washington, but never actually been done. The House of Representatives passed an Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. That's a fancy way of saying a bipartisan infrastructure bill, a once-in-a-generation investment that's going to create millions of jobs, modernize our infrastructure, our roads, our bridges, our broadband, a whole range of things, to turn the climate crisis into an opportunity. And it puts us on a path to win the economic competition of the 21st century that we face with China and other large countries and the rest of the world. It's going to create more jobs, good-paying jobs, union jobs that can't be outsourced, and they're going to transform our transportation system for the most significant investments in passenger rail, the most significant investment in 50 years, in roads and bridges, the most significant investment in 70 years, and more investment in public transit than we've ever, ever made, period. It's going to modernize our ports and our airports. I'm going to be going to some of our ports next week and to freight rail, increasing that as a reason. I mean, look, we have a bottlenecks across the country. We're doing so much with this legislation. It's going to make it easier for companies to get goods to market more quickly and reduce supply chains, bottlenecks, and now, and now, and for decades to come. You know, and according to economists, this is going to be uh, ease inflationary pressure, not increase it, ease inflationary pressures by lowering costs for working families. It's going to create jobs replacing lead and lead water pipes. So every American, every child can drink clean water, improving their health and putting plumbers and pipefitters to work. How long have we been talking about that? It's a gigantic issue. Jobs making high-speed internet affordable and available everywhere in America. And you heard me say this before, but I apologize for repeating myself, but no parent should have to sit in the parking lot of a fast food restaurant so their child can do their homework because they have no internet connection except to go off of what's going on and with that internet connection from the fast food restaurant. This is going to make significant historic strides to take on the climate crisis. Some of you were with me when I was uh, recently in Scotland at the, at the COP26. What do people keep asking me? Are you going to fund this? Are you going to fund it? Are you really going to do what you're saying? Are you, well, this is go steps of, get along a big step along the way of doing it. We're going to build out the first ever national network of charging stations all across the country, over 500,000 of them. 
so that you can make a real auto, and you know, auto companies are made a commitment that we're going to make 50% of vehicles electric by 2030. So you'll be able to go across the whole darn country from East Coast to West Coast, just like you can stop at gas stations now. These charging stations will be available. We'll get America off the sidelines on manufacturing, manufacturing of solar panels, wind turbines, battery storage, energy and power of, for electric vehicles, from school buses to automobiles. And it will reward companies for paying good wages and for getting materials for their products from right here in America. And America exporting and providing the rest of the world with these technologies that are generated here in the United States as we go green around the world. It also makes historic investments in environmental cleanup and remediation. It builds up our, resi our resilience against superstorms and droughts and wildfires, hurricanes. You know, you've heard me say it again. I apologize for repeating myself, but $99 billion in losses last year because of climate crises. Not in America. $99 billion. It cost the taxpayers of America. It represents a blinking red code out there for our nation. Vice President Harris and I look forward to having a formal signing ceremony for this bipartisan infrastructure soon, because but everybody's not, I'm not doing it this weekend because I want people who work so hard to get this done, Democrats and Republicans, to be here when we sign it. But we're looking more forward to having shovels in the ground to begin rebuilding America. And for all of you at home who feel left behind and forgotten, in an economy that's changing so rapidly, this bill is for you. The vast majority of the thousands of jobs that will be created don't require a college degree. There'll be jobs in every part of the country, red states, blue states, cities, small towns, rural communities, tribal communities. This is a blue-collar blueprint to rebuild America, and it's long overdue. I'm also proud that the House took a big step toward uh, forward to pass my Build Better, my Build Back Better Act, which uh, for the week of November 15th, they're going to be taken up. They went through the procedural mechanisms to assure that occurs. Let me be clear. We will pass this in the House and we'll pass it in the Senate. The Build Back Better Act will be a once-in-a-generation investment in our people, getting America back to work by reducing the cost of child care and elder care and getting millions of women back in the job who have to stay home because they cannot afford the child care or the health care for their parents, providing universal pre-K for every three- and four-year-old child in America and increasing their academic achievement potential significantly, significantly, making health care more affordable, lowering prescription drug costs, the tax cuts for working people and the middle class so that folks have just a little, as my, I know you're tired of hearing me say, my dad used to always say, as a middle class guy, we just need a little breathing room, a little breathing room. It's going to reduce child poverty in this country, by the way, by 50%. We're already on track to do that with the, the child tax credit we passed in our last piece of legislation. And this bill is fiscally responsible. That's a fancy way of saying it's fully paid for. It doesn't raise the deficit by a single penny. And it actually reduces the deficit, according to the leading economists in this country, over the long term. And it's paid for by making sure that the wealthiest Americans, the biggest corporations, begin to pay their fair share. Again, you've heard me say it 100 times. Why should 40 or 55 corporations have made over $40 billion in the last couple of years? Why should they pay zero in tax? I said, I'm a capitalist. I'm not a socialist. But the bottom line is everybody should pay their fair share.
Zero in taxes? Come on. And so, and keep my campaign commitment, it does not raise a single penny in tax for anyone making less than $400,000 a year. Say it again. Folks, no matter what they tell you, you're going to find out. This will not affect your taxes one little bit in having to pay a penny more if you make less than $400,000 a year. Independent experts have concluded that these bills are the highest value investments that we can make to grow the economy. It's going to create millions of jobs, increase productivity and wages, and reduce costs, and generate significant and historic economic growth. Again, the press is here. The poor people have to follow me all the time. They've heard me say this a lot. We got out of the blue a couple weeks ago a letter from 17 Nobel Prize winners in economics, and they determined that it will ease inflationary pressures, not create them, ease them, ease those pressures. And for the economy, it recognizes that we, uh, we, we face an inflection point. For most of the 20th century, we led the world by a significant margin because we invested in our people. We invested in ourselves. You've heard me say it a thousand times. Jill would say, my wife says, any, any country out education is going to outcompete us. We invested in education. We invested in health. We invested in things that affect people's opportunities to succeed. We built an interstate highway system, which led to the best roads, bridges, airports, and transit systems in the world. These are the arteries of commerce that move goods from coast to coast quickly. That's why people decide to build facilities here in the United States. We empowered our companies to outcompete the world. And we created jobs and untold opportunities for our people to travel, to live, and to work. But somewhere along the way, we stopped investing in ourselves. We stopped investing in our people. And we risked losing our edge as a nation. I don't even think it was conscious, but this just what's happened. And China and the rest of the world are moving to catch up, in some cases, in certain areas, move ahead. Our infrastructure used to be rated the best in the world. Today. Today, according to the World Economic Forum, we rank 13th in the world. The United States of America ranks 13th in the world in infrastructure. Come on. We used to lead the world in education achievement. Now, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD, ranks America 35th out of 37 major companies when it comes to investing in early education for childhood education and care. Think about that. Those of your parents know. You start kids early. You give them the basis. You give them the, the, the material to be able to go on. It's simply unacceptable that we rank 35. We're now turning it around in a big way. Any single element of this plan would be a fundamental change in America. But taken together, they're truly consequential. Again, I have, have more to say this about this soon, but. When we have the bill signing, I'll be able to thank everyone in the Senate and the House for their leadership. I hesitate to start now. I'll leave somebody out, and I want to make sure everyone who is part of this gets credit for it. But for now, I want to quickly thank members of the House who worked so hard to get some of this done. Speaker Pelosi, Steny Hoyer, Jim Clyburn, progressive leaders, moderate leaders, Democrats, Republicans. They, they in fact, worked together. It was like, as I saw us. Someone told me my staff this morning that on one of the programs this morning, they said, well, we finally, the sausage is made. You know, well, you know, it, it is a process. You all know it. You're all pros. You cover it. 
The American people have made clear one overwhelming thing, I think, and I really mean it. All the talk about the elections and what do they mean and everything. They want us to deliver. They want us to deliver. Democrats, they want us to deliver. Last night, we proved we can on one big item. We delivered. I want to close with this. For much too long, working people in the middle class of this country have been dealt out of the promise of America. That sounds like hyperbole, but I really mean it. Some of you may remember when I ran, I was legitimately, I mean, it's appropriate to be criticized. I don't, I'm not complaining about being criticized. But when I said I was running for three reasons, one, to restore the soul of America, bring back some decency and honor in the way in which we dealt with one another. The second reason was to rebuild the backbone of the country, the middle class, the, 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 the wealthy are, are, are value added to the country. But they didn't build a country. Hard-working, middle-class folks are the ones that built this country. They're the ones that built the middle class. They're the ones that built the backbone of the country. And what I decided to do was I said, we have to begin to build the economy from the bottom up and the middle out. Well, folks, that hadn't been the case. I'm so tired about trickle-down economic theory that I'm trickled out. The idea that and I asked the rhetorical question. When the middle class has done well, when are the wealthy have never have when at any time is the wealthy not done extremely well as well? I mean, come on. We've got to give working folks a real chance. A chance. And so, folks, there's an awful lot more to say about this, but today uh, I think is a has just been a good day. You know, it's time to deal folks back in. You know, as you've heard me say it again, I, I make no apologies for it. These bills, these bills, in fact, are, are, are the two bills we're talking about, Build Back, the Build Back Better bill, which we're going to be working on now, and this bill, are, are all designed to give ordinary people a fighting chance to begin to sort of level the playing for just a little bit, not punish anybody. I've long said it's never, ever been a good bet to bet against the American people. Never. And that, what it really means is bet on the American people. Give them a shot. Give them a shot. That's what these plans do. They bet on average Americans. They believe in America. They believe in the limitless capacity of the American people. If you look at the history of the journey of this nation, what becomes crystal clear, not a joke, given half a chance, the American people never, ever, 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 ever let their country down. We're about giving them a full chance this time. And, and when we do, there's going to be no stopping us. I truly believe that 50 years from now, folks are going to look back and say, this was the moment, this was the period, this, this year and the next couple years, when America decided to win the competition of the 21st century, to get in the game full bore. So my message to all the American folks is, let's get to work. Let's get this done. God bless you all, and may God protect your troops. And I'll take a few questions. But to what extent did the election results help propel this uh, bill to the finish line? And how, did, how were you able to bridge the gap last night between moderates and progressives? Well, you know, I, I'm not being facetious with the answer I'm about to give you, but I, I, I don't, 
I, I, I'm not going to be a prognosticator and make a judgment on what, how the election could or would have been different. Each state is different, and I, I don't know. But I think the one message that came across was get something done. It's time to get something done. Stop, y'all, stop talking. Get something done. And so I, I, I think, again, that's what the American people are looking for. And I think it's a legitimate, and when you ask how, how we were able to bring things together, <laughs> well, you know, uh, um, <laughs> I, uh, look, all kidding aside, I, I have, um, I believe everybody in the process is entitled to be treated with respect. And I've been doing this kind of thing, my, doesn't mean it's not all me, but I've been doing this thing my whole life. I've been able in the Senate to put things together when people said they couldn't be put together just by making the overwhelming point that, that you can't have all you want. It's a process. There's no one piece of legislation that's going to solve everybody's problems. So I spent a lot of time, as you probably heard, <laughs> with a lot of people, both political parties and within my party, saying, look, let's if we move on what's here in this bill, that is the, the infrastructure bill, it is a game changer in a half a dozen ways. The fact that it has too much of what you don't want and more than you, and not, not enough of what you don't want, just let's, let's be reasonable. Let's take a look at this. Let's do what we all agree at a minimum is in the interest of the American people. And if you want to add more, we can fight about it later. Or you want to subtract some of it. I've never voted for a major piece of legislation, an omnibus bill, that I was for every piece of it. People say, well, how do I explain this? I said, well, you explain to the American, your, your constituency, and I'm not telling you how to do it, but you go home and say, this is what it did. It had one piece in here, there's not enough money for this, or there's too much money for that. But overall, this has been a gigantic benefit to my, my congressional district. And so I spent a lot of time um, taking questions from both. And by the way, everybody at the end of the day, I have to admit, dealt with me fairly. I mean, they were, they, 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 they were, we, and part of the process, and there's probably more than you need to know, but um, part of the process is getting to know all the people personally again. I've been out of government for four years. I used to do this every day. I used to know about everybody's district I was working with when I was vice president. I know, I know them and call up and say, hey, Charlie or Harry or Mary. And so it's getting to know a lot of these people, to build trust. Because everything I say I'm going to try to do, I'll try to do. And I think that's also part of the process. And so I, hopefully it can continue. Mr. President, Mr. President, you just alluded to it there, Mr. President, two questions. You are arguably the most legislatively experienced president we've ever seen. But to get this first agenda item over the finish line, you needed Republican votes. Sure. You are not going to have Republican votes, though, for your Build Back Better agenda. Isn't it doomed? And then my second question, Mr. President, OPEC Plus has snubbed your call to pump more oil. When will you respond with an SPR release? Well, first of all, um, I'm not anticipating that OPEC would respond, that Russia and or Saudi Arabia wouldn't respond. They're going to pump some more oil. Whether they pump enough oil is a different thing. 
There are other are, there are other tools in the arsenal that we have to deal, and I'm dealing with other countries at an appropriate time. I will talk about it, that we can get more energy in the, in, in, in the pipeline, figuratively and literally speaking. And uh, I don't start off with any assumption that I can't get anybody to vote for anything. And so I, I mean this sincerely. I think what's going to happen is we're going to see what happens in the Senate and whether or not I need only Democratic votes, which is likely, which is a likely outcome. And the question is, can I get all of those votes? This is a process. And all along, you've told me I can't do any of it anyway. From the very beginning, no, no, come on, be honest, okay? You didn't believe we could do any of it. And I don't blame you, because you look at the facts, you wonder how is this going to get done? But I think, I think there's a... I think there's a dawning on the part of a lot of people, a whole elective office, that if you get some of this done, things are better for them as well as everybody else. And I'm sure there's some calculations saying, well, if Biden gets this other bill, then he's going to be moving too fast and it's going to hurt, you know, the Democrats are going to be doing too well. That's why I think we have to try to figure out how to make the case across the board as to there's a lot of things we have to tackle. Yeah, so. Mr. President, have you gotten assurances from moderate Democrats in the House and Senate that they are going to vote for your Build Back Better plan now that what they really wanted, the infrastructure bill, has passed? You know, I'm not going to answer that question for you because I'm not going to get into who what made what commitments to me. I don't negotiate in public, but I feel confident. I feel confident that we will have enough votes to pass the Build Back Better plan. Well, Mr. President. What gives you that confidence? Me. <laughs> uh, you were forced to scrub uh, paid family leave from your framework a couple, a couple of weeks ago. I'm sorry? You were forced to pull paid family leave from the, the, the framework you released a couple of weeks ago. The House is putting it back in. Can you keep it in this bill when it makes its way to the Senate? Time will tell. I'd like to ask you real quick, sir, where, where do you stand? You said last week uh, that this report about uh, migrant families at the border getting payments uh, was garbage. No, I didn't uh, say that. Let's get it straight. You said everybody coming across the border gets five hundred, four hundred fifty thousand dollars The number was what you had a problem with. The number with. I was referring to. Okay. Now, here's the thing. Sure. If, in fact, because of the, the outrageous behavior of the last administration, you coming across the border, whether it was legal or illegal, and you lost your child. You lost your child. It's gone. You deserve some kind of compensation, no matter what the circumstance. What that will be, I have no idea. I have no idea. Yes. DOJ negotiating a settlement. Uh, Mr. President, uh, two questions. You referred to China twice in your comments, and yet we haven't heard anything about the China bill, which is really the third element of, of what you're hoping to do here. It's been through the Senate, has not yet come up to the House, and it would seem that that is the one that is more key to our, our competitiveness. So I was wondering if you would talk a little bit about that, and then also tell us how you're feeling right now about the Iran deal, since uh, it looks like you're going to go back to discussion at the end of the month, but the Iranians have made it pretty clear at this point they don't they plan to rip up most of what was done so far. So 
Are you into your plan B at this point? I'm not going to comment on Iran now. And, uh, and the China bill you're referring to, everything in good time. We've got to get this through. We've got to get this through. The next thing is build back better. Do that? Well, in order. I'm going to take one more question and then Mr. I President, Mr. President, can I follow up on paid leave, Mr. President? <laughs> Sir, Mr. may President. I follow up on paid leave? <laughs> <laughs> Mr. President, Democratic Congresswoman Abigail Spamberger said of your presidency this week, nobody elected him to the FDR. They elected him to be normal and stop the chaos. How do you view your mandate after Tuesday's election losses for Democrats, and is she wrong? Abigail's a friend. We had a long talk. She joked and said, and I have a picture, she said, I have a picture of Roosevelt hanging in my office, her office, okay? I don't intend to be anybody but Joe Biden. That's who I am. And what I'm trying to do is do the things that I ran on to do. And look, people out there are ordinary, hardworking Americans, are really, really been put through the ringer the last couple years, starting with COVID. COVID has disrupted almost every family one way or another, whether it's wearing a mask or losing a family member. You know, 750,000-plus Americans dead? 750,000. And so people are worried. People are also worried about, you know, coming up, they, they don't, understandably. Why is the price of, of, of agricultural products, when I go to the store, why is it higher? What, like, for example, <clears throat> if I had, if we were all, going out and having lunch together, and I said, let's ask whoever the, whoever's in the next table, no matter how, wh what restaurant we're in, have, have them explain the supply chain to us. Think they'd understand what's, what we're talking about? They're smart people, but supply chain. Well, why is everything backed up? Well, it's backed up because the people who supply the materials that end up being on our kitchen table or in our, in, in, our, our, fam our, our, our life, guess what? They're closed those plants because they have COVID. They're not, and so it's a complicated world that people are facing. We've never faced anything like this before. I mean, I'm not saying it's the worst of every time in American history, but we never faced anything this, this sort of defiant of understanding of what's going on. And you can understand why people are upset. And I, I, whether you have a PhD or you're, or, or you're working, you know, in a restaurant, it's confusing. And so people are understandably worried. They're worried. And so all I can say is what I'm going to try to do is explain to the American people as best I can. And by the way, you all write for a living. I haven't seen any one of you explain supply chain very well. No, no, I'm not being critical. I'm being deadly earnest. When your editor says, explain the supply chain. Okay? Lots of luck in your senior years, my coach used to say. But, 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 but I, I sincerely mean it. This is a confusing time. Confusing time. Think of all those children, all those children who may have lost more than a year of education by only being out one semester. Think of all that's going on in terms of access to everything from when you go back to college, if you're in college, you go back to college, where, do you have to wear your mask or who's your roommate? What, I mean, this is a confusing moment. And it seems to me that my job as the President of the United States is to try to figure out, myself as well, what is most needed to put people at ease 
and let them know there's a way through this. There's a way through this. The world has never been here before. That sounds like hyperbole, but think about it. Think about it. This truly is one of those inflection points in history. All the pieces on the board are moving, both in terms of the, the, the relationships among and between nations, as well as the pieces of what employment future we, people have. How do we do this? And so this is a confusing time. But I promise, I promise the American people, I have one focus. How do we give you some breathing room? How do we get you to the point where we take pressure off you so you can begin to get back to a degree of normality and we move to a different place? And this time when we move, and by the way, everybody internationally uses Build Back Better now. When I use the phrase initially, people looked at me like, Build Back Better. Well, what it means, we're the only country in the world gone through a crisis, that goes through a crisis, and come out better than we were before the crisis occurred. That's building back better than it was before. And so this is a process. And uh, I, I just, you know, we're going to see. We take it every day, every moment, at, you know, one moment at a time. I could take, I'm going to get in real trouble. This is the last question I'm taking. You can decide who I'm pointing to. And when do you think the Build Back Better bill will be passed? By Thanksgiving, Christmas? I don't want to make your job easier. I don't want to give you, I know the answer exactly when it's going to be passed. And I know exactly how it's going to. When do you hear the impact from this bill? <laughs> so when well, they'll we'll see the effects of the bill, this bill, probably starting within the next uh, two to three months as we get things, shovels and grounds and, and the ground and people being told they're going to be working, doing the following things and things are going to move. It is a bill that's paid out over a number of years. And so, but the, 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 the biggest thing it does is give people go, you're going to have people going, oh, okay. Well, I guess I, I'm going to be able to keep my job or I'm going to be able to get, get a job doing that or I'm moving. So I can't tell you that any, any that with precision. If anybody can, then they ought to go into fortune telling. But it's going to be it's going to be a provision, uh, a bill that is going to have a profound impact over time. It's a little like, and I'll end with this, a little like when I we first came to office. And a lot of this has to do with, with this lady right here, the vice president. It's not I didn't not all me. I feel I used to stand there and have to listen to the president. She's got to stand there and listen to the president, but she deserves an enormous amount of the credit. But here's what the deal. When we came to office, we were told virtually by everybody, you can't get this economy moving. Remember? Remember when they told me there's no way I could get, uh, you know, two million shots a day into people's arms in the beginning? There's no million, there's no way I get 200 million, so no way I could get the vaccine. There's no way, no way, no way. It's understandable. It's not, it's, it's, I'm not criticizing people who said that because these things have never been done before. It's never happened before. And so we got to work. I agree, I am a congenital optimist, but it's because I really mean this. I have enormous faith in the ingenuity in the integrity of the American people. I'm not joking. I have enormous faith in them because I'm convinced 
we're the most unique country in the world. Not because we're all so smart and the rest, but because we're the only country that's organized based on an idea. We really mean it. We haven't lived up to it, but we hold these truths to be self-evident. All men and women are created equal. Basically, give everybody a shot. And I really have faith in the American people. I know we're divided. I know how mean it can get. And I know there are extremes on both ends that make it more difficult than it's been in a long, long time. But I'm convinced, we let the American people know that we're committed to enhancing their ability to make their way. We'll all do better. Thank you all so very much. Thank you.